Tonight we come to consider the name Jesus and it would be hard to think of a more glorious subject to consider. Jesus, the name high over all in hell or earth or sky, angels and men before it fall and devils fear and fly. Jesus, the name to sinners dear, the name to sinners given, it scatters all their guilty fear and turns their hell to heaven. Uh, those verses are from Charles Wesley. Here is John Newton. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. It soothes our sorrows, heals our wounds and drives away our fear. It makes the wounded spirit whole and calms the troubled breast. Tis manna to the hungry soul and to the weary rest. And in a few moments we'll focus in on our text uh, here in Matthew 1, 21. Uh, but by, by way of introduction, you, you might want to have Philippians chapter 2 open in front of you as we start tonight where we finished last week. Because the name Jesus, as we saw at the end of last week's sermon, is the name at which every knee will bow. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Everyone in this building tonight, everyone in this town, everyone in Scotland, everyone in the world. One day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. As we saw last week, when Paul says Jesus Christ is Lord, he was using the covenant name for God in the Old Testament, the name Lord, which appears in capital letters in our Bibles. And that was a phenomenal thing for the Apostle Paul to do, for, for someone brought up as a Jew to do. All his life, Paul would have recited the Shema, Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And now this same Paul could say, Jesus Christ is Lord. The Lord is one and Jesus Christ is Lord. And that actually seems to be what Paul is referring to when he says that God has bestowed on Jesus the name that is above every name. It's often assumed that the name above every name is itself the name Jesus. There was a, a 1970s hymn, Jesus, name above all names. Or even the, the Wesley hymn I quoted at the beginning, Jesus, the name high over all. Uh, I, I have a book, book at home entitled uh, Name Above All Names, uh, which goes through some of the titles of Jesus, like the seed of the woman, the true prophet, and so on, uh, which, which sounds like a nice sermon series to do. Uh, but actually what Paul seems to be referring to uh, by, by the name above all names is the name Yahweh, uh, the Lord, which we looked at last week. And that's the name Jesus is given. He is given the name above all names. And that's not to diminish Jesus' glory, quite the opposite. Rather, it means he has been given the name above all names, the name Lord Jehovah Yahweh. In Philippians 2, Paul is quoting from Isaiah 45, 
To me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord shall it be said of me, our righteousness and strength. And that name, the Lord, is a name now given to Jesus. That is a name bestowed on him. And so in Philippians 2, Paul is saying that because of what he did on the cross, God has highly exalted Jesus and given him the name that is above every name. And what is that name? Well, it's the Lord. As one commentator has put it, this bestowal by God is the rarest of all honours. In Isaiah 42, 8, God says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other. God doesn't give his glory to another. He is the Lord. That is his name. It's no one else's name. And yet here in Philippians 2, Paul calls Jesus Lord. So that's an amazing thing. Now it's not a new name for Jesus, it's the Father's declaration of who Jesus has always been. Someone who has never been God cannot become God, uh, despite what uh, our Mormon visitors last week think. But Paul is speaking here of the Lord Jesus in his role as our mediator Just as Jesus himself says in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Jesus already had all that authority by right as God. But he can also speak of authority being given to him. And that authority is bestowed on him as the God-man, as our representative, as our king. And it's all a result of him going to the cross. That's why he's highly exalted. That's why he is given all authority in heaven and earth. And that is why he is given the name above all names. And that is the reason that he came into the world in the first place. As Mary and Joseph uh, were told right at the beginning, you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And that's the verse that we want to consider for the rest of our time tonight under two headings. Uh, Firstly, we're going to look at the meaning and misuse of the name. The meaning and misuse of the name. The verse begins, You shall call his name Jesus. The fact that the name Jesus is often used as a swear word is a great grief to us as believers. And yet surely it also provides strong proof that the devil is real. The fact that people of other religions, people of professing Christianity even, and people of no religion would use the name Jesus as a swear word rather than use the name of any other God that anyone else worships is surely because the evil one wants to drag Jesus' name through the dirt. It's surely because his strategy is that we become accustomed to hearing Jesus' name without any sense of respect or reverence. And as Christians, we need to be aware of the devil's schemes 
Uh, we need to be very careful what we allow ourselves to listen to. Last week, a, a Christian that I know sent out a, a mildly funny video, uh, but, but in it, someone was repeatedly taking God's name in vain. Uh, and I was left thinking, really, it, it, is watching this video really worth it to hear God's name taken in vain? Boys and girls, there, there's an old song that some of us were taught when we were children, and part of it says, Oh, be careful, little ears, what you hear. Oh, be careful, little ears, what you hear. For your Father up above is looking down in love. Oh, be careful, little ears, what you hear. No matter how interesting a program might be to watch, it is not worth watching if, if they're repeatedly taking God's name in vain. And so very sadly, we, we often hear the name of Jesus being spoken by those who have no idea who he really is, uh, no sense of his glory and majesty uh, and the fact that one day they'll stand before him, uh, no awareness of the God who has said that he will not hold those guilty who take his name in vain. They use Jesus' name, they have no idea who he is or what his name means. So what does his name means? Well, that's what we're thinking about under this first heading tonight. One thing that we may not realise as we read along in our Bibles in English is that the name Jesus doesn't come out of nowhere. And it's actually there in the Old Testament. Uh, Because in the original language, the name Joshua in the Old Testament is the same as the name Jesus in the New Testament. The name Jesus is used for both Joshua and Jesus. So you have Joshua, the son of Nun, uh, Moses' successor, uh, the one that the book of Joshua is named after. You also have Joshua, the high priest, in the books of Zechariah and Haggai. Uh, And surely neither of those facts are accidental, uh, that these men were called Joshua. And that the name Joshua is the same uh, name as Jesus would be given. Who was uh, the first Joshua? Joshua the son of Nun. He was one who led God's people into the promised land. Just as Jesus is the one who leads us into the true promised land. Into heaven itself. The book of Hebrews makes that connection When it says, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So you have Moses and Moses was the one who brought the people out of Egypt. But he wasn't allowed to lead the people into the promised land. Uh, Boys and girls, why didn't Moses lead the people all the way into the promised land? Well, because he disobeyed God. He He had struck the rock Uh, when he wasn't meant to. So he wasn't allowed to lead the people in. But then there's this man Joshua, and he does lead the people into the promised land. For for 40 years they had been wandering about. They had no uh, house to stay in. Uh, They just had to stay in a tent. Uh, maybe some of you have been, on, been in tents or are going to stay in tents this summer. Uh, and it's alright for a week or two. But you wouldn't want to do it for 40 years. But that was the people in the wilderness. But Joshua, he brought them in to the promised land where it would be their permanent home. 
but he couldn't bring them true rest. He couldn't bring them rest from their sins. He could bring them in somewhere where they could live in a house rather than a tent, but he couldn't take away their sin. Only Jesus could. And so the earthly promised land was never the ultimate destination for God's people. For that we need the true and better Joshua, the Lord Jesus, who who leads us into our true homeland. The very same chapter of Hebrews that tells us that Joshua couldn't give them rest. It speaks of Jesus, uh, Jesus our great high priest. And Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, he was a high priest in Zechariah and Haggai. And unlike other high priests, he, he was crowned. Just as Jesus is our high priest and our king, so we have a, a, in the Old Testament a priest king called Jesus, a priest king called Jesus, uh, Joshua the high priest. So what does this name mean, Joshua, Jesus? It means that Yahweh is salvation. It means the Lord is salvation. If the people were to be saved, the Lord is the only one who could save them. They couldn't save themselves by turning their life around, turning over a new leaf, starting to coming to, coming to church, being good people. Only God could save them. Joshua could provide a, a physical salvation. He could, he could bring them into the promised land. But only Jesus can bring spiritual salvation. And Jesus was a popular Jewish name at the time. Colossians 4.11 tells us about a Jesus who was called or surnamed Justice, one of the believers. And every time that name was used by the Jews, it was a testimony to their belief that Yahweh saves. But this baby who the angel appeared to Joseph and told him about, wouldn't simply point to the Lord who saves. He himself would be that very Lord taking on human flesh. And he himself would save. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And that that he is actually emphasised in the original language. If you, if you write on your Bibles, you could circle it or, or put, it in, put it in bold. It, it could be translated, he himself will save his people from their sins. One version translates that you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he that shall save his people from their sins. He is the one they had been waiting for. And he would save them, uh, no one else. There's more Isaiah in the background here. Uh, the name Isaiah itself is a very similar name. It means the Lord saves. Uh, and it all points us back to Isaiah 43.11. I am the Lord and besides me there is no saviour. The message of both Old Testament and New Testament is that God is the one who will save I am the Lord, besides me there is no saviour. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 
And as it becomes clear in the New Testament, how will God save? The Old Testament tells us that he'll save, but how will he save? He'll save by taking on human flesh. And that's where we'll be going in our second point tonight. But before we get there, it's worth mentioning that there is nothing magic about the name Jesus. What do I mean by that? Well, I'm talking about well-meaning Christians who see the apostles in the New Testament healing people and casting out demons in the name of Jesus and who think that it's, it's merely pronouncing his name that brings about the healing or casts out the demon. And they think that all they need to do is pronounce the name Jesus and the same things will happen. But John Calvin has a helpful little comment on Acts chapter 3. Boys and girls, you you remember what happens in Acts chapter 3. Peter and John are going up to the temple and they meet a lame man. He asks for alms. Uh, Alms is money. Uh, But Peter replies, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. But but Calvin comments, we must not dream there is any magical force in the sounding or pronouncing of the word. All Peter meant to declare was that he was nothing but a minister and that Christ was the author of the miracle. In other words, if the book of Acts is about all that Jesus continues to do and teach, uh, now that he's in heaven, now that he's at work by his spirit in the world, then healing someone in the name of Jesus is simply declaring that Jesus is the one doing the healing, that it's not us. It's not like a, like a, a, a special phrase that, that Peter had to use in order to heal someone. Now, we don't believe that the gift of healing continues today. Uh, we believe God can miraculously heal people, but, but we don't believe that people have been given that, that gift but we do believe in the reality of demons, though we maybe don't, don't think of the, that reality as much as we ought. And sometimes Christians ask if they should try to cast out, out demons in the name of Jesus. To personalise this a bit, what should I do as a minister if I get called out to a house some night? Because it seemed very clear that someone there was under some sort of demonic attack uh, and that's a that's a call which which one of my friends got quite quite recently um he, he'll remain anonymous because he doesn't want to be known uh, as an exorcist but it, but he genuinely got that call and one man who addressed that question uh, directly was called fred leakey he was an irish rp minister he, he wrote a book called satan cast out and the reason that he wrote that book was to give guidance to missionaries who were frequently being confronted with demon possession. And in that book, he says that in some Christian circles, there's an attitude to the name of Jesus which almost borders on magic. He says that some Christians believe the very sound of Jesus' name will terrify the demons. But of course, we already know that that's not the case from Acts chapter 19. Because there we're told about some Jewish exorcists who undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. 
And they would say to the evil spirits, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. But one time they tried that and an evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And Professor Leakey points out in the book what we've been saying over these past weeks, that a name in scripture is never just a label. On the contrary, it is an expression of the nature and character of the one who bears it. So to, to proclaim Jesus' name is to tell forth the truth concerning his person and work. Just as we see in Acts chapter 8, 13, where we're told that the people of Samaria believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. It's not interesting as we're thinking at the minute of the, the kingdom of God in the morning and the names of God in the evening. Uh, people in Samaria were converted as Philip preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. So Jesus' name, it, it stands for all he is and all he does. I mentioned Acts 19 and the fact that there were Jewish exorcists and so, so it is possible even for non-Christians, even for unbelievers, to have some success in driving out demons. But as Professor Leakey says in his book, if there is no experience of salvation through the preached word, what has been accomplished? And doesn't Jesus tell, tell us that himself in Matthew chapter 12? When he says that if an unclean spirit is driven out of someone, it will go and get seven other spirits more evil than itself and come back. In other words, unless the Holy Spirit comes to live in our hearts, then even to have a demon cast out of us, it just leaves a vacuum and, and that, that demon can easily go and bring back seven others uh, to, to come inside us instead. And that, that picture of, of the house being cleaned and brushed, it's a bit like someone who says, well, I'm going to clean up my lives. I, I've, been, I've been a slave to whatever this, this addiction is for so long and I've lost everything. And so I'm going to get my life together and I, I'm, going to, I'm going, to, going to stop whatever the addiction is. I, I'm going to get my life on track. And yet unless Jesus comes into their lives, it's just as if they, they've cleaned and swept their house but they need the Holy Spirit to come in. We need to remember that on the last day, Jesus himself tells us that there will be people who say, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name? And his reply will be, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Professor Leakey concludes that section in his book. He says, The greatest weapon which the church possesses is the word of God proclaimed in the fullness of his spirit. When we face Satan with the sword of the spirit, we do so with the weapon he dreads the most. Our Lord, in his temptation, used no other weapon. And so the, the prayerful proclamation of the word is what God will use to bring about the doom of the adversary. 
It's not simply about uh, turning up and pronouncing the name Jesus and expecting a demon to depart. It's about turning up and pronouncing what God's word says and giving the person the hope of the gospel. Uh, Because ultimately the demons will only permanently leave when the Holy Spirit comes in. So firstly tonight, the meaning and misuse of the name Secondly, uh, we see there is salvation in no other name. There is salvation in no other name. Coming now to the second half of the verse. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This verse helps us answer two questions. Uh, Those two questions are, who did Jesus die for? And did Jesus come to save or did he just come to make salvation possible? So, so two questions. Who did Jesus die for? And did he come to save or just to make salvation possible? Uh, and those two qu- questions go together. If you'd ask most people, even most Christians, the question, who did Jesus die for? They would probably say, well, we died for everyone. But if you do that, then you can't answer the second question by saying that Jesus came to save You can only say that Jesus came to make salvation possible. Unless, of course, you're going to say that everyone is going to be saved in the end. Now, there are some people who teach that. It's known as universalism. It's heresy, the the, the teaching that Jesus came to save everybody. And so everybody will be saved in the end, whether they're Hitler or whoever, whether they believed in Jesus or not, that everybody will, will one day be saved. Uh, but, but mainstream orthodox Christianity has always rejected universalism. The Bible clearly teaches that not everyone will be saved. Uh, Jesus himself makes the contrast between the resurrection of life and the resurrection of judgment. Uh, so not everyone will be saved. Uh, though when Jesus is asked by his disciples, will those who are saved be, be few? He, he doesn't uh, give them a direct answer. But Orthodox Christianity uh, believes that not everyone will be saved. And so if not everyone will be saved, it leaves us with two options. Either Jesus came to make salvation possible for everyone but not actually to save anyone or he came to actually bring about salvation for a certain group of people and it's hopefully pretty clear from uh, from the verse in front of us what the answer to that is Uh, did Jesus come just to make salvation possible no it tells us he came to save his people from their sins but do you see the dilemma Uh, particularly if you only take the question of who did Jesus die for. Uh, People don't like the teaching that has become known as limited atonement. In other words, the idea that there's a a limit in terms of how many people Jesus died for. But unless you believe in universalism, everyone believes there's a limit. Either there's a limit in terms of how many people Jesus came to die for, or there's a limit in terms of how effective Jesus' work on the cross actually was. 
Some people teach that when it comes to our salvation that God has cast his vote and Satan has cast his vote and it's up to the individual to cast the deciding vote. Uh, God has voted for us to go to heaven, Satan has voted for us to go to hell and it's up to us to cast the deciding vote. But there are two big problems with that idea. And the first problem is that if that was the case, there would be no guarantee that anyone would be saved. It would be a bit like when David Cameron held the Brexit referendum. He, he thought it would go one way, he hoped it would go one way, but there was no guarantee. And in the end, he was bitterly disappointed he had to resign. And in the same way, if Jesus only died to make salvation possible, there's no guarantee that anyone would be saved. There's no guarantee that anyone would actually believe. And actually, no one would believe. And that's because of the second big problem, which is that spiritually speaking, we are dead by nature. Paul reminds the Ephesians, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And what changed? Did they, being dead, decide to accept God's offer of life? No. Paul goes on, but God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. We were spiritually dead and we still would be spiritually dead. But God, but God made us alive. I did a go team to a church one time and the minister took us outside to the graveyard and he said, try and speak to some of these graves and tell the people to rise from the dead. Of course, we know it's it's, it's impossible for us to raise people from the dead and it is equally impossible for someone who is spiritually dead uh, to, to raise themselves a spiritual life. Only God can make them alive. But, but, but we hear the objections. Uh, maybe you have objections. People say to us, if you only believe that Jesus died for a certain number of people and not for everyone, then, then how can you tell everyone to believe Because if they're not among the people Jesus died for, they're not going to believe, so there's no point. Or or they can't believe because he didn't die for them. And again, there are two responses. The first is, how do we find out who Jesus died for? Uh, We find out in the only way the Bible tells us to find out. We, We proclaim the gospel, and if someone believes, then we know that Jesus has died for them. And, and no one can use the fact that they don't know whether they are elect or not. Uh, no one can use the fact that they don't know whether they're part of that number as a reason not to believe. Because Jesus himself says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And you can take him at his word. Your responsibility isn't to try and, and work out uh, anything like that. Your responsibility is simply uh, to, to come to Jesus. He said, if you come to him, he will never cast you out and he won't. Other people may cast you out. Uh, the, the Psalms talk about father and mother casting me off. Our families might cast us off, but, but God will not. Jesus will not. We aren't called to act based on the secret counsels of God, but rather we're to act on the basis of what God has revealed. 
And that brings us to, to, to the second response to the objection, which is that we are not to stand in judgment over what God has revealed. We don't have time tonight to look at all the biblical evidence, uh, but one passage we looked at recently was Isaiah 53, uh, which tells us of Jesus that he was stricken for the transgression of, of who? Of my people. Again, a specific group of people. Or we could go to what Jesus himself says in John's Gospel. The good shepherd lays down his life for who? For the sheep. And he tells us that the reason people don't believe is that they are not among his sheep. His sheep, when they hear his voice, they will respond. Or or we could go to the book of Acts, which says that God purchased the church with his own blood. Yes, there are other passages that seem to say that Jesus died for all. But as we saw this morning from 1 Corinthians 15, you'll soon get in trouble if you assume that all in the Bible always means every last person. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. Uh, Orthodox Christianity does not teach that that every single person without exception shall be made alive uh, through new life in Christ Jesus. Uh, So that that all there doesn't mean every last person on earth. We need to read the Bible in context. All uh, in the Bible, it can mean all God's people. It can mean all kinds of of people. An unlimited atonement might be easier to swallow, but it can bring no comfort and no certainty. Because either you you have a... a limited atonement which actually saves or an unlimited atonement which doesn't actually save anyone. And that's why many prefer to talk about a definite atonement. Atonement for a definite group of people that brings about a definite result. So how will we know who make up that number? It's those who repent and believe in this life. So have you done that yet? Perhaps Jesus was to you once a swear word. Is his name still a swear word? Is Jesus' name just the name of a historical figure to you? Or is he your saviour? Whether you believe in his name in this life or not is what will determine where you spend eternity. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Amen. We'll close with the words of Psalm 130. Psalm 130, the B version, page 327. And the tune will be Martyrdom 114, Psalm 130b. The last two lines of this psalm are, are very, very closely connected to our text this evening. Matthew 1.21 says, He will save his people from their sins. And Psalm 130 says, He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. 
Uh, and in both verses, the he is stressed in the original language. He himself will save. He himself will redeem. And there is no conflict between uh, talking about a limited atonement and saying uh, there is plenty of redemption found in him because he provides uh, all the redemption that his people need to make it safely home and he provides a redemption that is offered to every last person on earth man, woman, boy or girl uh, if you believe in Jesus you will be saved uh, that is our message because that is the bible's message believe on the lord jesus christ and you will be saved so psalm 130 uh the b version uh will stand as we sing praise <laughs>